0: You're all very welcome. Before we uh, begin, let me just mention a few things. Uh, Probably most of you are aware that last week uh, one of our church members uh, died. That's Pat Salt uh, and also uh, Mike Elliott, the husband of one of our church members, Jill Elliott. So I encourage you to keep praying for Pat's daughter, Joe, and her family, and then also Jill and uh, the rest of that family at this time. And then as we have been doing, we at the moment let's plan that we will go out through these doors and close by singing outside, uh, the weather seems to be okay, I think. Any thumbs up from the last people to come in? Thumbs up. So uh, if it takes a turn for the worst, we'll change, but let's let's plan on that the song sheets are there by the door. And then after our service there is a holiday club meeting, which I believe is through there, and that's just to gauge how much help might be available if we're able to run our holiday club in the summer. And then we are meeting again at 6 p.m. this evening to continue in Matthew's Gospel, and that will include our time around the Lord's Supper. And in the week, the Loss and Grief group is meeting here at the church, Tuesday morning at 10 a.m., and you are very welcome to that. Uh, You could get in touch with Twala if you want to find out some more, or I could point you, give you her details if you want to contact her. And then on Thursday, our long-postponed church annual general meeting is due to take place here at the church, 7.30 on Tuesday evening. So if you are a church member and you haven't yet returned your deacon's re-election forms, please do that by today. And if for some reason you're not able to attend the meeting, please send your apologies to either Steve Couchman or one of the other elders. We mentioned a few weeks ago that we were going to participate in the UK-Hong Kong Churches Initiative to be available to help people moving here from Hong Kong. So Morna Walkington is going to coordinate that So if you signed up to help, Morna will be in touch with you if we are contacted by anyone, and she'll let you know what's involved in being part of that. We've come here to worship the Lord, our great God, and our first song calls us, it invites us to behold the Lord upon his throne in all of his glory. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, our Father in heaven, we bow before you and we give you our praise as the one who holds the keys of death and hell. The one whose word rules. The one whose will is done in heaven and on earth. Lord God, we pray that your will will be done in our lives. We offer ourselves to you again. We want to serve you. We want to honor you with every part of our lives. We want to love you with all our heart and soul and strength. And We pray especially today for those of us who are fathers. Will you help us in some small way to show by our lives the kind of father you are. Help us to follow you in your good use of authority. Help us to follow you in your alertness to the needs of your people, in your active care for your people, your long-suffering love, your gracious strength, your concern to teach your people what is true. Will you help those of us who are fathers to show some small element of your character as we lead our families? Will you give us courage, give us sensitivity, give us perseverance, forgive us our many failures, don't let us give up when we fail. Will you wake us up when we go to sleep spiritually, when we get lazy, when we forget our high calling? Will you use us to bless our families and to bless this church? Make us a blessing wherever we are. And we pray too today for Jill Elliott and Pat's daughter, Joe, and her family. Will you comfort them as they mourn? Help them, our Father, lift up their eyes to you. And for all of us today, will you speak to us through your word. Renew our joy and our hope as we look to you. Our good shepherd. Amen. We're going to read now a very well-known and a very beautiful passage of scripture. It's Psalm 23. Psalm 23
1: So the reading of God's word is taken from the book of Psalms Psalm 23 which is a psalm of David The Lord is my shepherd I shall not want You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May God bless his word to each of our hearts.
0: We're very familiar with the first part of that psalm especially and the promise that our good shepherd will lead us even through the very darkest valley. But the second part of the psalm speaks about the good things God provides. It refers to a table, a feast, even in the presence of our enemies. It mentions an overflowing cup. And ultimately, it speaks about joy in the Lord's presence forever. And our next song invites us to the feast that God has provided. And it reminds us God provides this feast for us through Jesus Christ and all that he has done. The trumpet sign, the angels sing. Now, the Sunday school are going to be continuing their time of worship next door, and the transition group, I think, is going out with Steve, yes, so if you follow Steve out the back. If you have a Bible, turn with me, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy chapter 14, and we're going to read the whole chapter. You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Do not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope and the mountain sheep. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. However, of those that chew the cud or have a divided hoof, you may not eat the camel, the hare, or the hyrax. Although they chew the cud, they do not have a divided hoof. They are ceremonially unclean for you. The pig is also unclean. Although it has a divided hoof, it does not chew the cud. You are not to eat their meat or touch their carcasses. Of all the creatures living in the water, you may eat any that has fins and scales, but anything that does not have fins and scales you may not eat. For you, it is unclean. You may eat any clean bird, but these you may not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, the black kite... Any kind of falcon, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the cormorant, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopoe and the bat. All flying insects are unclean to you. Do not eat them. But any winged creature that is clean you may eat. Do not eat anything you find already dead. You may give it to the foreigner residing in any of your towns, and they may eat it. Or you may sell it to any other foreigner. But you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your corn, new wine and olive oil and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, Then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no land allotted to them or any inheritance of their own. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns, so that the Levites who have no land allotted to them or any inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. This is God's Word, and it sets out two feasts and two cultures. One feast and culture that we are to avoid, and one we are to enjoy. And as we come to this, remember what's going on. Moses is getting the Israelites ready for life in Canaan. Canaan is a place that rejects the Lord. Canaan is a culture where people do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. That's how the place was described in chapter 12. And so this book is useful for you and me as we live in a culture today that's similarly unconcerned with the Lord and that's equally careless about living in ways that please him. Now, of course, as we read chapter 14, it will have been very obvious that we need to think quite carefully about how this book is useful for us today. Most of the specifics of the chapter are very foreign to us. But the principles are principles that still apply today. And in fact, they're fairly straightforward principles. The first feast of this chapter is dealt with in verses 1 to 21. It's a feast of death. And the principle is, don't participate in a culture the Lord hates. So far, I've used the word culture a few times without explaining it. A culture is the beliefs and values of a group which play out in the activities of that group. So, for example, sometimes a workplace or even a sports team will be described as having a culture of fear. Meaning, fear is what drives the thinking and the behavior at that workplace or on that team. It might be fear of the boss, it might be fear of the customers or of the fans. But fear is the main thing. Some people have argued that the recent lockdowns in our country have encouraged a culture of suspicion. We're suddenly more interested than ever in what our neighbors are up to. Are they keeping the rules? And then we wonder if what they're doing is really something that we need to report to somebody. Now, I'm not saying that lots of people are thinking and behaving like that. I'm just saying that's what we mean by a culture of suspicion. People's suspicious behavior is driven by suspicious thinking. Here in the first part of Deuteronomy 14, it's Canaanite culture that's being talked about. And it's a culture God's people are not to go along with because Canaanite culture is is a rejection of the true and living God. That's what characterizes its thinking and behavior. And there's a very positive reason why the Israelites are not to go along with that culture. Verse 1 says, you are the children of the Lord your God. Verse 2 goes on to say, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples in the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be His treasured possession. So what we're going to hear in the rest of this section is not a finger-wagging exercise. It's not ultimately a negative thing at all. The do-nots in this chapter are here because God's people are privileged. They're special to Him. They're family to Him. That's the closeness they have to Him. That's the place they have in His heart. And so the do-nots in this section come from the Lord's desire to see His people enjoy that closeness to Him. You can see that if you glance down to verse 21. There Moses says to the Israelites, you don't have to try and stop the people around you doing these things. They can eat whatever they like, but you are to be different because you are a people holy to the Lord your God. So then, don't participate in a culture the Lord hates. You'll have noticed that most of this section is about animals and eating, but it all starts in verse 1 with the command, Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. Now we know that Canaanite worship involved the worshippers cutting themselves. There's a very vivid example of that in 1 Kings chapter 18. There, the prophet Elijah challenges 450 prophets of Baal to a contest. It's a contest to see which God is the real God. And as part of their efforts to get a response from Baal, The writer of Kings tells us the 450 prophets of Baal slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. The book of Leviticus tells us that along with that kind of frenzied slashing, various forms of tattooing played a significant part in Canaanite religion. And both in Leviticus and here in verse 1, that is mentioned specifically as cutting yourselves for the dead, along with shaving the front of your heads for the dead. It would be interesting to see what that hairstyle looked like exactly. We don't know the exact style, but along with cutting yourself, it was done for the dead, which apparently means to influence the dead. Commentators tell us Canaanites believed the dead had power in the world of the living. Chapter 18 will give us more detail about those beliefs. And this self-harming and forehead shaving were attempts to make contact with the dead and to influence them. God's people are not to participate in that sort of stuff because they're his children. He is the father who loves them and cares for them. They don't need to seek help from spirits of the dead. Doing things to your body in the hope of gaining spiritual power is one of the detestable things the Lord hates about Canaanite culture. His people are not to take part in it. And that first detestable thing is followed by another in verse 3. Do not eat any detestable thing. And that single command is the key for understanding what we find in verses 4 to 20. Without verse 3, it would be very hard to make sense of those verses. Without any context, the division of various animals into clean and unclean is hard to explain. Why, for example, are the Israelites told they can eat sheep but not pigs? Why does it matter whether an animal has a divided hoof and chews the cud? Well, some people have wondered if it was to do with healthy and unhealthy meat. And maybe there is some stuff here that no one should ever eat. But overall, that doesn't really hold up as an explanation. There have been other quite complicated suggestions about why some animals get the thumbs up and others don't. There may be some insight in those ideas, but the reality is we don't know for sure why some animals are listed as acceptable and some aren't. And in fact, in some cases, we're not sure which animal the Hebrew word is referring to, because the manuscripts were not illustrated with little pictures to make it clear for us. So if we're not sure exactly what some of these animals were, it's hard to be precise about the reasons they're given a thumbs up or a thumbs down. But what we are told quite clearly in verse 3 is that the division of the animals is to help the Israelites avoid Canaanite worship. We've already pointed out the connection back to chapter 12, which said that in worshiping their gods, the Canaanites do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. So here in our passage, when verse 3 uses that same word and says don't eat any detestable thing, we can safely assume this is about steering clear of Canaanite worship. In fact, going back to the example of the pig, the book of Isaiah mentions pig's blood being used in sacrifices to idols. It says that eating pig's flesh was associated with trying to contact the dead. So whatever else may be behind the division of animals into clean and unclean, here in our passage, the focus is on God's people not participating in false worship. If you look down again to verse 21, this time to the very end of the verse, and the command not to cook a young goat in its mother's milk, that seems utterly bizarre. Why would people have to be told not to do that? Who would want to do it? Well, we know that practice had a connection with Canaanite worship and with magic spells. So although goats are okay to eat, the Israelites aren't to participate in rituals that use them in magic. And presumably some of the unclean animals were so deeply associated with Canaanite worship that they were to be avoided altogether. And so what this passage is doing is taking us beyond the general statement we heard in chapter 12. Chapter 12 said that in worshiping their gods, the Canaanites do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. And now we're being given some examples of those detestable things. Things that are normal and everyday in Canaanite culture, but God's people are not to participate in them. God's people are his children. They are his treasured possession. And they are to show it by staying out of those detestable things. No matter how normal, no matter how everyday those things might be. They are ultimately part of a culture of death. They are a feast of death. And so maybe we can begin to see how the principle here applies to us today. I say the principle applies to us because we know the specifics about clean and unclean food do not apply to us today. In the New Testament, Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, tells us Jesus declared all foods clean. In other words, he announced that the food laws of the Old Testament had a limited purpose for a limited time. And by Jesus' time, they had served their purpose. That was made clear to the Apostle Peter as he received the same message in a vision from God. Even though Jesus had said it, Peter still needed to be convinced. You can read that incident in Acts chapter 10. So if you were planning to have pork chops for lunch, that's okay. You don't need to switch them for lamb chops. But the point you and I do need to take home is that always, whatever time and culture we live in, there will be practices that are considered normal and every day by everyone else, they're a deeply embedded part of what goes on around us, but as God's people, we are not to participate. Because those practices are detestable to the Lord. And they're ultimately destructive for those who live that way. They're part of a culture of death. Even when the culture around us considers those practices part of a good life, as children of the Lord, we are to stay out of them. So let's think about some examples You may be at a stage of life where getting drunk and using drugs are considered normal things to do by those around you. You may be in a situation where using pornography is considered not just normal, but healthy by those around you. A couple of weeks ago, a study came out claiming that at least 50% of British people use pornography. One teenager from Birmingham who was interviewed said that he personally didn't know anyone who wasn't using it. So it is considered normal in our culture. But we know it negatively affects the way people relate to the opposite sex. We know it contributes to violence against women and to the abuse of children. We know that it kills marriages. We know that it steals genuine sexual satisfaction. It is a feast of death. And we know the Lord hates it. It is not part of His good blueprint for sex. And so, as the Lord's people, as His children... We don't use pornography, no matter how normal our culture considers it to be. And if we're already tied up in it, we take serious steps to break away from it. We get the accountability software on all of our devices. And we don't give up fighting to live free from it. Of course, you might be in quite a different situation. You may move in circles where the culture around you has a different set of things that are normal and everyday. Greed, maybe. Where being satisfied with what you have is considered to be a weakness, a sad lack of ambition. Instead, being driven by a lust for more and more is something that's celebrated. I saw a luxury yacht once that was called Never Satisfied. The owner was obviously proud of that. You may be surrounded by a culture of relentless personal ambition. We're pushing others aside so that you can get ahead is just the way it's done. We're lying to make an impression Or to gain an advantage for yourself is the obvious thing to do. Or maybe what's pressing in on you is something very different. Again, maybe victim culture is what's normal around you, where everything is somebody else's fault and somebody else's responsibility. And the main concern is to find out who to blame. And how to get compensated for all the ways the government has let you down. Or the ways that your parents failed you. Or your teacher didn't make sure you got the grades you thought you deserved. Or your boss didn't give you the support and understanding you felt you needed. Don't get me wrong, there are genuine victims in every society. There are wrongs that do need to be put right. But when everyone is claiming victim status and won't take any personal responsibility, that is a culture of death. And it's hateful to the Lord who calls every single one of us to admit that we have fallen short personally, who calls us to turn from our own sin and seek His mercy in Jesus Christ. No one's going to turn to Jesus while they're committed to being a victim all the time. Becoming a Christian means admitting we have made our own contribution to the world's problems. We've done our own share of rebelling against God. And we cannot blame somebody else for that. And we need God's forgiveness. As the Lord's people, there may be times when it is right for us to pursue justice. But we will not participate in a victim culture. So long as we live in this present world, there will always be aspects of the culture around us that are considered normal, but which are in fact detestable to the Lord and that cause us deep harm. Those things are going to vary from culture to culture. The things the Canaanites did probably seem weird to you and me, but they would look at us and say the same. Just because people today aren't cutting themselves for the dead or burning their children in the fire, that doesn't mean today's culture is heavenly. So as God's people, we cannot afford to just go with the flow. We cannot afford to just do what everyone else is doing. We need to help each other to listen to God's word, to weigh up the things that are going on around us. Not just to assume that if everyone's doing it, it must be okay. We need to think about the consequences of greed, the consequences of dishonesty, of pornography, of a life of blaming everyone else. We need to see where our culture is detestable to the Lord. And we need to refuse to participate in those things. No matter how acceptable and how normal other people consider those things to be. The first part of Deuteronomy 14 has given us the negative negative don't participate in this. But now comes the positive. As children of the Lord, we are to create our own alternative culture, a culture centered on our good God. Verses 22 to 29 describe the feast of life. Make the Lord the center of your culture. Back in chapter 12, we heard about the one place of worship the Lord will choose. That's the background to what's said here in verse 22. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your corn, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God, at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. This tenth, or tithe, is actually set aside to pay for a celebration. And this celebration is different from what the Canaanites do, because it's a celebration that is centered on the Lord. Verse 23 says, this feast is eaten in the presence of the Lord. Those enjoying the feast are making him the focus of the feast. And verse 23 says that awareness of the Lord's presence produces reverence. Literally, it produces fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord is not to stand there with your knees knocking together because you're terrified of him. That's not what it means. At least, that's not what it means for God's people. Here is a helpful definition. To fear the Lord is to take the authority and disposition of the Lord as the greatest reality of all, and to base your living on him without reservation. To fear the Lord is to take the authority and disposition of the Lord as the greatest reality of all, and to base your living on him without reservation. The Lord's disposition is his attitude to things. It's how he thinks about things. Does he love this thing or does he hate it? Is it detestable to him? When the pers- What the person who fears the Lord cares about most, what matters most to them is what the Lord thinks about things. And they surrender to his authority in their life. They base their living on him without reservation. God's people have an alternative culture where he is at the center. Their culture is determined not by what they think, not by what the people around them think, but by what God thinks. And if you look down at verse 26 look what this fear of the Lord produces. After giving a shopping list for the feast, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, after the shopping list, verse 26 tells us, those who feast in the presence of the Lord rejoice. A culture that is centered on the Lord is a culture of genuine joy. When we are surrendered to His authority, we are able to truly enjoy what we're doing. And the reason we can truly enjoy it is because we know He is with us in our celebration. So if you're ever in a situation and you wonder if it's right for you to be in that situation, or if you're about to do something and you wonder if it's right, just stop and ask yourself if I do this, or if I stay in this situation, am I sure the Lord will rejoice with me in it? If you can honestly say yes to that, if the Bible gives you reason to believe the Lord celebrates what you're doing or what's going on around you, then you're probably on safe ground to go ahead. But if you have to admit, actually, I don't think the Lord would celebrate with me in this, then it's time to get out of that situation or pull back from what you're about to do. True life and true joy are found in things the Lord loves and celebrates. And as God's children, those are the things you and I are intended for. Those are the things that are good and healthy for us. So in every situation, we ask ourselves, does he love this? Does this give him joy? If it doesn't, then I shouldn't be seeking joy in it either. It's a feast of death, not life. So next time you're tempted to seek enjoyment by slagging someone online or by gossiping about them behind their back or by taunting them to their face, just pause and ask yourself, is this going to give the Lord enjoyment? Will he laugh along with me if I do this? And when you're invited to some event, again, if you're wondering whether to go, just ask yourself, will the Lord be celebrating what goes on there? 1 Corinthians says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. There are a surprising amount of things you can do for the glory of God. But if you're considering getting involved in something you cannot do for His glory, because it's something He hates, then it's not for you. And if you honestly don't know what the Bible says or how the Bible applies to the situation you're thinking about, then ask. Ask another Christian, ask me or Steve. We love to help with those kind of questions. As God's people, his dearly loved children, we are to create our own culture of life in the midst of the culture of death that's all around us. And the more we make him the center of our culture, the more our lives will be a feast of life. And our activities will lead to true joy rather than joy that's hollow and shallow and short-lived. Joy that turns quickly into bitterness. And when you live a life centered on God and what He thinks and what gives Him joy, then you will truly be a blessing to others. It's really important to see this because sometimes Christians want to argue against what we've been saying so far. And their argument is, we cannot really love and help others unless we join in with their culture. So we have to be willing to be part of some things that are questionable in order to bless other people in the long run. But that argument does not hold up. The Bible's answer to that argument is that the people who are the greatest blessing to those around them are people who center their lives on God, who take care to live in ways that He loves. And this passage gives us a good illustration of that. Verses 22 to 27 have focused on the tenth, or the tithe, being used to feast in God's presence. God's people find their joy in centering their lives on him. But now, look how that joy spills over into care for others. We might say, the table God's people feast at is a table that overflows. Look at verse 28. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns. So that the Levites, who have no land allotted to them or any inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. So every year, the people collect a tenth of what they produce on their land. And every third year, that tenth of the produce goes to provide for those who have no land of their own. The Levites are in that position because that's how God set things up. He intended they would be provided for this way. But plenty of others were landless too, not by intention, but because they were foreigners, fatherless, or widows. We're not given details of precisely how this storage and distribution was to be organized. But the point is, this is the natural outflow of God's people making him the center of their lives and culture. Their joy in his presence doesn't become stagnant. It doesn't become self-indulgent joy. These people are not actually preoccupied with their own joy and satisfaction at all. They're committed to organizing and providing help for others. And that is a huge contrast to the culture of death we heard about in verses 1 to 21. That was preoccupied with self. It was all about getting what you want. Cut yourself so the dad will do what you want. Present pigs' blood to the gods so they'll do what you want. This is very different. Verses 22 to 29 say, Make the Lord central in your life, find your joy in Him, and you'll be less and less concerned about grasping and fighting for what you want. Your joy in Him will flow out into care for others in their need. And you will work to meet their need. So if you and I want to be a true blessing to others, we will not feel the need to join the culture of death that's all around us. That might seem a helpful, loving thing to do, but it really doesn't help. If we listen to God's word, we will realize that the most helpful people are the people who center their lives on the Lord, who rejoice in what He rejoices in. Those are the people who truly bless those around them. The lives they live are life-giving because they're filled up with the life of God and the love of God. They notice the needs of others and they love to help. Because the God at the center of their lives is the God who loves to meet the needs of his people. So as we leave Deuteronomy 14, you and I are never going to remember the categories of clean and unclean animals. And we don't need to. They have served their purpose. Jesus said we don't need the categories anymore. Bacon sandwiches are no longer a problem. We can safely forget about clean and unclean meat, but we do still need the principles of Deuteronomy 14. The principle that the way for God's people to find joy and to be a blessing is to refuse to entangle ourselves in the detestable things that are normal in the culture around us. Instead, we develop our own alternative culture where God and his word determine what is normal for us. Our last two songs give us the opportunity to respond to what we've heard. And I do encourage you to think of these songs as a response. I know we often wander out and get talking and we forget what we've been saying in here. But let's use are singing as part of our worship. So as we move outside, now let's sing as an expression of our commitment to God and our desire to center our lives on Him. <laughs>
2: let will try.